morning is Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 in the ESV, which is your pew Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise, likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Grapes of Wrath. Lovely title, eh? Great passage, scripture. I can tell that you guys are extremely excited about this sermon today, all right? You read it every single day, you listen to the podcast, you read the Daily Walk, you process it in different translations, in paraphrases, and you know for yourself exactly what it means. At least, I hope you know what it means. John Steinbeck was a Nobel Prize winner of literature and he's most famous, and you've probably read East of Eden or Mice of Men, but most famous as well for the Grapes of Wrath. Um, and this is where Steinbeck traces this family that was moving from Oklahoma to California to be able to get some work and press some grapes out there, collect some grapes out there, and in the hope through the Great Depression, surviving this horrible tragedy inside there. But uh, as they were choosing a title for the book, he and his wife were discussing what should they call this book, 
there was a, a debate as to where they should uh, pull this title from, and some say that they pulled it from based on Revelation chapter 14, and some said that they chose it from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and others and say some other sources, but really, the Grapes of Wrath comes from this text in Revelation 14, because they really did believe that when you are under oppression, there was an angry God who would punish the evil, and it was a very popular misinterpretation of Revelation 14 which in fact is what I refer to a compound belief, a compound belief. Now, you understand that everybody has a compound belief. We all have compound beliefs. Um, they're very hard to break because they're inside our DNA, this compound beliefs, and deep inside, and they're passed from generation to generation. It's all the stereotypes we have. I mean, JJ and Stephanie are moving, moving to Germany, and I have tons of compound beliefs about Germany. I mean, in England, we have lots of compound beliefs about the French, but we have even more about Germany. Uh, my son Joshua has a girlfriend uh, who's German, and, um, and so I said immediately uh, at home, I said, uh, just don't mention the war, you know, uh, when I was going to meet her to the family, as if, as if they were going to mention the war, and as if we goose-step at home or anything like this, because this is all comedy in Britain, it's all funny, but of course it's not funny to everybody, but it's funny to us and all that kind of stuff, and so, hey, you know, that's how we do it. But these are compound beliefs because they're built on stereotypes that actually sit within our DNA from generation to generation. The difficulty is that these compound beliefs exist and actually they affect how we relate to each other. And sometimes they affect them negatively and sometimes they affect them positively. They affect the way that we perceive each other and they affect the way that we even see ourselves. So of course, when it comes to God, we have compound beliefs. And the wrath of God is a compound belief. One which I believe is often misconstrued and one which is very, very, very uncomfortable for a lot of people. We either like to sanitize it, you know, bring it down and diffuse it, or we love to ramp it up as hard as we can and try and control it. Because it's very difficult to control what the wrath of God is, especially when we have to deal with the end of life or we have to deal with disease or suffering and pain or joy and happiness or free will and direction. They even affect the way that we understand John 3.16, right? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son seems fantastic, but there are some compound beliefs that would give you the impression that people really say, for God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son, right? This is the kind of like idea that's just seething and living underneath there, but the people kind of believe underneath is underneath the text, and I just, for the record, just for the record, God did not kill Jesus. I know some people believe this, but God did not kill Jesus. And just for the record, God does love the world. I even put it on screen, just in case you, you didn't hear me, and I wanted you to translate it, and you just forgot that. God didn't kill Jesus, and God does love the world. So, it's graduation season, right? Lots of graduations going around, and it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, in fact, what's interesting, I was sharing this with a friend of mine, that. There's a lot of graduations in this country, way more than in England. In England, you kind of just graduate at university, but here you graduate for everything. It's amazing. I mean, you graduate from kindergarten to first grade, from eighth grade to high school, from high school to university. And in fact, it's kind of fantastic because you're celebrating all the stages of life. I mean, 
the kid like just, they, they grow a tooth, you graduate, it's just, it's just great. And, it's, and I was describing this the other day because I went to uh, Vista Ridge's pre-K, uh, the kindergarten graduation, I was describing, they're this big. And they're like wearing the full regalia. And then they're like, they were, they're getting them to march and they're, and they're like, and it's, just, it's really cute, it's really cute. So you, sh you should just enjoy every single moment of that. But of course, with all the graduations, there's loads of parties. <laughs> You get to go to all the parties, you get to celebrate and give gifts and community, and so it was fantastic, and I got to enjoy it. By the way, if we missed celebrating your graduation and we didn't put it in the worship guide, um, there's a little secret. Tell us. I'm trying to read your mind, but tell us. <laughs> tell us, and we would love to celebrate with you. We'd love to put it inside the worship guide. We'd love to come and celebrate at your school as well. Just let us know. Now. I did notice at many of these graduation places the exceptional amount of cakes that existed. <laughs> and I felt there was my duty for before Queen and Country to, to test them for quality. And so, if they were, especially if they were from nothing bunt cakes, right? I mean, if there were nothing bunt cake, if you'd not eaten a nothing bunt cake, especially if it was a gluten free cake, <sighs> it's, it's brilliant. So, I was going around experimenting and testing all of the nothing but cakes at all of these graduation parties. In fact, when people came to talk to me, I said, <laughs> testing, quality. And so here I was testing all this stuff out. And as I was eating these cakes, I had an epiphany moment. I was thinking, what if God is like the perfect cake? That's what happens when you eat great cake. You have these great moments, right? Already I know somebody's like, no, this is not a good illustration because cake has sugar and fat and eggs. And of course, this is based on your compound beliefs. <laughs> and I'm, I just, I know you're pushing away this idea, but just hang in there with me. One day, my vegan friends, Jesus will heal you. <laughs> and you'll be able to eat. <laughs> I mean, you'll be able to eat cheese and eggs. I didn't mean like you'll be able to eat food. <laughs> of course, you'll be able to eat food because you do eat, right? I mean, I think you do. So, back to the cake. You get to see this picture, right? You see cakes posted on Instagram. You hear about people talking about cakes. You see the joy that people have with cakes. You get to see the cake, and you think to yourself, that is fantastic. But then, you get to eat the cake. That's even better. The experience is always phenomenal. And of course, when you eat a cake with a friend, and they're eating it, and you're eating it, and you're like, yeah, it's good. And you're like, oh, this is so good. And then, not only that, you get to imagine and you get to think about what it could be to actually create the cake. What would it be like to actually bake this cake? How would it be to decorate this cake? Maybe the art and beauty of, and the time that it would do. So could it be that to really enjoy the cake, could it be that to really enjoy God, that maybe, we have to see the cake, all right? See this? We have to see the cake. Because if we see the cake in plain sight, which is what this text, and bear with me, but this text actually says this. If you can see in plain nature, if you can see the glory of God in plain nature, you can see, it's pretty straightforward, there's something pretty darn amazing about it. It's pretty amazing about it. In fact, this morning, as I was writing this and reflecting on this, I, was, I wrote down about the fact that you can just see that when you have a, a little baby and they snuggle up with you, and literally, a friend of mine, Chris Self, sent me a text saying, hey, I'm praying for you this morning, 
And I said, hey, that's fantastic. I'm just reviewing my message this morning. And then he sent me a picture of his new baby. And I was like, no way. I'm just literally reading the line, snuggling of a baby. I'm like, no way. And I saw the picture. I was like, that's fantastic. This is good. When you see beauty, you're inspired that God is with you, that God is real. Uh, Gordy and I were talking about the fact that he was saying that he saw this amazing sight through his camera. But he said, when you take the camera away, the eye, God created us, we can see so much more. The camera, even the best cameras can grab this. And I, I know Jim may try to dispute this, right? Because Jim is constantly like trying to capture the most amazing moment. And if you don't follow him on Instagram, you need to. But, uh, but he's, like, he's constantly like, oh, and he does. I do drool when Jim does take a photo. But I'm sure, I'm sure that Jim would agree with us. Right, Jim? That you can see so much more with the naked eye, that you can see so much more of the beauty outside there. And I've done this. I've driven down Mapleton late at night, down the hill, and as you're coming down the hill, I've seen the moon just right there, and I pulled out my iPhone because it's mesmerizing, and I take a photo of the darkness and the moon, and it's horrible. And I say, Apple, you failed me. This is the only time you'll ever hear me say this. Because <laughs> even the Android wouldn't have done. <laughs> but I'm like, but then I put it away, and I stop the car, and I look, and I'm like, my goodness, that's amazing how you can capture that moment of that hill and that. I mean, it's just, it's mesmerizing. So you can see the power and the beauty of God. The other thing is that you've got to experience the cake. You've got to experience God. You've got to trust and know that God, and you do this through worship, through connect groups, through prayer life, through experiences. Every Tuesday, I get to meet with, the, with my fellowship group, my connect group called Fresh Word, and we meet over there. We have lunch that Jackie actually prepares for us pretty much every, every Tuesday, and it's fantastic. The lunch, the community, we laugh, we pray, we study, we converse, we live life together. And the experience of life gets to grow your faith inside there. And then you've got to bake, right? Because you've got to study the Bible. You've got to spend time. Because when you do that, you actually understand the character of God comes through. And Paul is saying this all through the beginning of Romans chapter 1. He's saying, look, it's in plain sight. You can experience God. You can even study the Word of God. But somehow, somehow you guys don't want to see, experience, and bake this. You just want to kind of cover it up and block it off. So I was really happy with this metaphor. I felt very happy with this. And as I was writing this metaphor out, I kid you not, I felt like the Holy Spirit was giggling. He kind of like leaned over, looked at my computer, and he was laughing at me. I was like, what's the deal, man? This is a great metaphor. And he said, well, did you copy this from someone? I said, no, I, I was eating the cake. I, it just came to me at that moment. He said, no. He said, I'm pretty sure there was a guy who said this in the Bible before you. I said, really? And then he just, he said, let me remind you. I said, oh, what? Psalm 34, verse 8. I said, really? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I was like, oh, yes, David. He did say that. He did say that. But, you know, it was a long time ago. He wasn't at nothing but cake. I think he was eating a grape or something, but yes, he did say or taste. And I said, well, you know, this is good. I said to the Holy Spirit, well, at least the vegans will be happy now. That there's theological rocks to my metaphor now. And then the Holy Spirit said to me that he wasn't amused by my comment. He said that I should consider being a vegan. I and he reminded me that he also said that, you know, I did remind you that you should also consider fasting one day a week. And I said, oh, man, this conversation's really gone too deep now. <laughs> I said, you know, let's go back to the cake. 
and uh, let me get back to the sermon. So at that point, the Holy Spirit said, all right, fair enough, but I will come back and remind you. I was like, oh my goodness. Let's go to the first question, shall we? Because uh, it could get complicated. So the first question inside your worship guide, because this is the problem sometimes, right? We have these impressions in plain sight where God tells us something, and it's pretty obvious, and God reminds us something, and what we'd rather do is just block it out. So, let's see what the first question is today. How do we approach difficult passages in the Bible? How do we approach difficult passages in the Bible? And this is so important, as we do have a tendency we do have a tendency when it comes to the Bible to just simply read the Bible with a kind of like serendipity, go lucky attitude kind of at times. And I, and I feel like it's, it's kind of dangerous the way we do this. I mean, how many of you would be really excited to go under the knife and when you meet your surgeon, the surgeon says to you, med school? <sighs> Who needs med school? I watched Chicago Med. I know everything there is. I know exactly how to put the gloves on and wash my hands. I'm ready for you. No, no, no. We spend all the time learning everything about our doctors. We visit them in their homes at nighttime. When they're asleep, we watch them breathe. We're wondering whether they sleep well at nighttime. We will discover whether we're their first patient. We want to know if they studied under a great mentor or whether they're a psycho or not. We want to know if they're going to be stable. Why? Because we're so worried about our physical mental well-being that we will go all of this effort to make sure that we will last forever. But when it comes to our spiritual well-being, which is going to, by the way, last forever, and, and when I say this, I just want to say in our new bodies recreated, see how I threw this? This is fundamental belief number 26, just in case somebody was saying that I don't preach about fundamental beliefs. Uh, there are rumors sometimes about this, I just threw it up there. Fundamental belief number 26, just thrown there, no charge. No charge. Um, I just want to let you know that when you die, <laughs> there is no spirit. You're in sleep, sleep mode. God has you, and then he resurrects you. Good, done. <laughs> but what's so funny about this is that we're willing to cut corners so easy. We're willing to cut corners all the time when it comes to our spiritual stuff, and yet when our physical stuff, we're like, oh no, I'll spend all the time with it. So how is it that we can think about this kind of stuff and we just ignore it? So it's because spiritual discovery, discipleship, following Jesus is rigorous, my friends. And there are a long list of barriers. So I've created some support for you to be able to help you through this. It's on boulder.church forward slash Bible. You can go there online and you can see this whole list of studies on there. And I, I've written it in lowercase and uppercase. You don't have to do that. Just write it any which way you like. It's just to make it easier for you to be able to read it. And there are lots of resources inside there. But here are the three ideas that I want you to remember today. These three ideas are really essential when it comes to a difficult passage. All right? Here they are. Prayer, premise, and promise. When I approach a difficult passage, I remember prayer, premise, and promise. It's very simple. Prayer, premise, and promise. Prayer, because you must always start with God. When you're going to read the Word of God, you must pray. I'm just amazed how many people just literally open the Word of God and they don't pray. They don't pray like God really revealed truth to me. They're just kind of like, all right, God, I'm going to read the Bible. Just good luck. Let me know. I'm talking about like God... Wherever the text takes me, let me follow it faithfully. Whatever the text says on the whole picture, let me be faithful to you. Premise, this is the premise, 
God does not change. This is difficult for people. People like to say, well, there's a God of the First Testament and a God of Second Testament. No, God is not in therapy. God is not a psycho. He's not schizophrenic. He's not like, I'm this way, I'm not this way. So hide and seek. God is the same all the way through. He does not change. And the promise, God is love. So I always remember this. I pray, I know that God doesn't change, and God is love. So when I come to the text, like Romans chapter 1, 1832 that we have today, I look at all the tools online that I shared with you, and I keep these three things all the time, prayer, premise, and promise. And if we would just keep prayer, premise, and promise in there, we would be much healthier. When we ignore prayer, and when we say that God is inconsistent, and we say that God is very irritable, we start to get a little bit crazy. For instance, you can read the story of Noah. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. By the way, in the Bible, Japheth has a H on the end. That is not my name. My name has no H on the end. I know some people come up to me and say, hey, J- Pastor Japheth. I'm like, I don't know who you're talking about. Somebody else, not me. <laughs> wrong country, uh, wrong era. Uh, so my parents took the H off. It's just Japheth, very simple. It's not Geppetto, <laughs> not anything else. Just Japheth, very simple. But in the Bible story, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham did some stuff, messed up got a curse, had a mark. People say he became black. He is the father of all the Africans. Therefore, because he's the father of all the Africans and he's cursed, therefore we can say that they are the descendants and his descendants are the slaves. And we're justified then to make them slaves. And we then take another text, Ephesians chapter six, which says, slaves, honor your masters. And between these two texts, out of context, we say we can take 10 plus million people from Africa and make them slaves. And we can go to bed at night and sleep like babies while we treat them like slaves because we've misunderstood the Bible premise that God does not change, that God is love. And where in the world would he want to treat a creature that he created as a slave, right? So when you have these premises, when you have these promises, when you have this prayer in your life, you look at the the text differently. And I need you to keep this text in mind and this understanding all the way through. Because if you do, you will see this text entirely different as well. There is no way that we could ever see that God is going to be advocating to oppress people. In fact, I don't even see Paul as oppressing people inside this text either. I don't see Paul saying, let me write a Bible text and let me see if I can create the Bible as the hit list, which is often how some people read the Bible. They kind of get the Bible and they're like, oh, this is about God, kind of. It's really about how I can, how I can assassinate people. <laughs> it's, my, it's my book of just basically disfellowshipping everyone, I can just say, you're not welcome, and you're not welcome, and you're not welcome, and I feel so happy. That's how people treat this book. Instead of the way that God actually inspired the people to write this story, saying, my table is huge, my righteousness is wide, and I bring everybody in, and I will work out everything with them. And I would wish that everybody would come to the table. In fact, people who don't like the table, they don't have to come. But I wish that everybody would come to the table. So instead of reading that you're out, you're out, you're out, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. 
So I look forward to complicated passages all the time. I encourage you to read all the complicated passages as well, but always with the idea that you must pray first, you must look at it with the premise that God doesn't change and the promise that God is love. Question number two, what fresh insights does this passage bring to us about God? All right, what fresh insights does this passage bring to us about God? Uh, I'm just gonna do a quick refresh of the last two weeks. and if you know, you can go and listen to the message. You can't listen to Pastor Jessica's message because they didn't record it last week, which I'm devastated about. I had so many people come and tell me, "Hey, it was a great message." I was away last week, and I was like, so many people came and said, "Hey, it was phenomenal." Gary was telling me about it; how it was just good. And I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I wanted to go listen to it, and uh, we have uh, 10 seconds, uh, and then it's gone, and that's 10 seconds of the introduction. So, so imagine it. It was very good. <laughs> But don't worry, Pastor Jessica's gonna preach very soon as the series continues and so you'll get to see the the continuation of the story inside it. But this is the passage so far in Romans and I need you to be with me on this because it's very important to understand where we launch into verse 18 here. Here's a summary of chapter one as so far. Paul's been saved by Jesus. Jesus called him to preach the gospel. Jesus has defeated death and his righteousness is revealed. And righteousness basically includes God puts things right, right? Just remember that. Righteousness means, as well, God puts things right. So it's incredibly jarring, kind of shocking, when suddenly we arrive at verse 18. And you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today, just in case you were not sure. Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. And it'll be on the screen if you don't want to turn in your Bibles. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18 Uh, And this is what it says there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And you're thinking, what? Why? We were just talking about the righteousness of God. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about how Paul says he's saved, how he's preaching the gospel. Everything's good. Everybody is on cloud nine. And all of a sudden it says here, for the wrath of God is revealed. And it can seem incredibly jarring and incredibly shocking to you. But you have to read on. Don't give up. When you get into a complicated text, just keep on reading and see what it says. And it says here, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's something going on here between the righteousness and the unrighteousness. There's a play going on here. So now you son it's like, oh, so God puts things right and we don't put things right. And this is the wrath of God, the pain, the sadness, and the anguish. Now here's just a little side note. There are many people who when they read this passage, I'm gonna give you the, the, just in case you fall asleep right now, all right? You're like, wait, what happened to that sermon? I fell asleep and I, so I'm gonna just tell you how it ends and then you can go to sleep and I'll wake you up at the end. You won't know the answer to the wrath of God until next week. Until two weeks from now. Until we get to chapter two, verse 16. See, we're the people who cut the Bible up. Paul didn't cut the Bible up. He just wrote the letter. We're the ones who dissected and say, well, I'm only gonna deal with these verses. Because apparently our capacity for dealing with more verses just is overwhelming. I'm like, I can only deal with 12 minutes, I think I can only deal with 20 minutes. But... <laughs> But Paul, when he writes this, he continues his thought all the way to chapter two, verse 16. Chapter two, verse 16 explains to you what the wrath of God is. It tells you that it's when God judges the secret things through Jesus Christ. 
all right? Now, you have to understand this, that many people, when they read this text here, they just think the wrath of God is all these things that are going on. They are not these things going on. This is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God saying, I get to watch the pain, and I'm going to, I'm going to have to deal with this, but I'm going to deal with it at the end by watching it happen, and it's going to happen in chapter 2, verse 16. So just hang in there. In three weeks' time, I'll explain it to you. Be patient, though, because the conclusions that we draw from this sometimes is very difficult for us. The unrighteousness that suppresses the truth, the things that we do as we suppress truth. So here's the question for us. What is the truth that's been suppressed here? What is the thing that is, God is saying and Paul is saying here that has been suppressed in chapter 1, verse 21? It tells us this. It says here, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God had given thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and foolish hearts were darkened. It's the same old dichotomy from day one. It's when our head and our hearts are out of sync. We just are not in sync together. When we allow our minds and our hearts not to be together, when we allow our thinking and our emotions to not be together, when we allow our reasoning and our experience to not be together. Are you with me? You've got to see the cake. You've got to experience the cake. You've got to bake the cake. And so with God, you have to see God. You have to experience God. And you have to bake with God. You have to understand and study. You have to be connected to God inside this. The problem is that we block out God all the time. We try to ignore God all the time. He says this in chapter 1, verse 25. He says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. What they do? They just, they said, we are going to create our own God. Paul knew this. It's the same old struggle from the beginning of creation, the same old struggle from Garden of Eden, the same old struggle right from Egypt. In fact, he reminds them, he says this in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 4. God spoke this word saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of this house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's beneath or that is in the water on the earth, under the earth. All of this, Paul is saying, you, the very first thing, you just don't understand. I need you to understand it is God you are supposed to worship. But for some reason, you as human beings love to worship yourselves. And you want to place yourself above God always. Four words. Four words. We resist worshiping God. When we do, we run things ourselves and we spiral out of control. God's response, the way he releases his winds, his wrath, Paul describes it this way. Four words, four words. He says, God gave them up in verse 24. God gave them up in verse 26. God gave them up in verse 28. In other words, he says this, look, I'm gonna let you choose. Do what you need to do but I'm gonna let you choose. And by the power of your choice, you'll just follow the way that you go. Now you gotta understand that life in Rome is, was very, very different to what you think life in Rome was like. You understand that men and women, they lived, they chose to live a really sexually promiscuous, incestuous filled life. When Augustus in 31 BC outlawed adultery, he said, nobody's allowed to have adultery anymore. The Romans literally just turned to their slaves and said, well, now you are my, now my sex slave. And I'm talking about children and adults and male and female. It was just all on. It was out of control. 
It was not about any desire or any orientation or anything else. It was just literally out of control. And Paul's saying, this is just out of control. You guys are out of control. And God said, you guys just don't understand what I created you for. Four words, four words. God created you to generate life. Families, children, adoption. Four words, God created you to worship, to praise, to lift each other up. Four words, God created you to love until death do us part for better or for worse. And four words, God created you to honor each other with words of affirmation and gentleness. And yet, Paul's like, look at the things you do. You boast over each other. You are horrible to each other. So I have one final question for you this morning. Question number three. What is the call that Jesus has laid on your life? What is the call that Jesus laid on your life? Let me be really candid here. I know that people read this text and without prayer and premise and promise, and they start to compound a picture of God. He's already angry, a despot out of control and keen to hurt people because they've not understood the power of forgiveness. And they start to compound a picture of sex, right, based on this text, built on millennia of generations of dysfunctional men and women with sexual issues all the way back to Lamech, who took two wives, Ada and Zillah. And if you read about this in Genesis, right at the very beginning, just look at the definitions of Ada and Zillah, and you'll understand the tensions that we have in marriages today. They start with, to compound with heart and mind, judging each other, avoiding the truth, seeking to control God. So I asked myself this question. Would Paul, after 13 years, right, after the road to Damascus experience, after being a person who had persecuted people, had made sure that people had been thrown into jail, had made sure that people had been stoned and crucified, right, would this person who then rediscovered God, that God, in fact, has not changed? that God, in fact, does love, that this God forgave him, that this God redeemed him, that this God reconciled him. Would this guy, would this guy want to write a letter to that society, Rome, and say, let me, let me start to write a letter to you just to like tell you about how horrible Jesus is. Let me try to tell you about how God is just hunting you down. Let me tell you about how God is just vindictive and God is just angry and God just wants to just take you out at the best moment as quick as he can. Or do you think that Paul was all about as much as he could that there is a God who's just calling you home, calling you back as quick as he can, saying, come back to the original plan that I created you for. Come back and belong to me. And no matter how complex it is, no matter what your path is, let me be the one to be the person who carries you, right? Instead of everybody else. Four words. God gave them up. Jesus never forced Paul to love him. And Jesus never brought Paul to road with a choice and just said to him, hey, I'm just gonna force you into this place. He said to him, I am always gonna give you the chance to do this. Paul wants us to make a choice. 
And Jesus has always given us this choice. The thing is, is that I think we often feel that we have to make the choice for each other, right? And I would like to encourage you to not make the choice for other people. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to read the Bible not for your brother and not for your sister. I'd like you to read the Bible for yourself. I'd like you to read the Bible between you and God. I'd like you to allow God to speak to you. I'd like you to let you rest in God and say, God, you help me on this journey. Because it is complicated enough trying to work out our own walk without having to judge everybody else's walk. And believe me, you just read two verses more because we cut it off at verse 32, right? But you just read two verses more and you just hear Paul just say, oh my goodness, you people just, just stop judging each other. That's all he says, but that's next week, so I can't say it right now. You just have to pretend that didn't happen, right? But this is what Paul is saying over and over again to us. I live in a world and you live in this same world where you know people that read this little portion of scripture and forget the rest of the Bible. Right? They have struggles with their parents, with their boastfulness, with their sexual orientation. And we just like banish them. And I'm kind of tired of that. I really am. I'm tired of it because that's not what the Bible's calling us to. The Bible's calling us actually to love every single person and to say to them, God loves you, God holds you, and God will hold you all the way through and God will handle you, and you work it out with God. And here's the thing, every single one of us, we've got our own struggles. Now some of us like to pretend we don't. I know, I know, I know. You've got like the perfect Instagram posts, I know. (laughs) But when you're honest, is what Paul said, it's in plain sight, everybody can see it. When you're honest, you know the truth is out there. Every single one of us, has the same struggle or a different struggle, but we all need the grace of God. And I want to encourage you more than ever before, without me having to spell it out to you, spend your own time with God, focus on your salvation, focus on what He has done in your life, be all that God has called you to be. And let's see what kind of amazing community we can be here, what kind of community we can be to transform other places, and be faithful to all that he's called us to.